Hello and welcome to ClapperCast, the global film podcast, a weekly discussion of all things cinema. I'm your host, Alina Falds, and today I'm happy to be joined by Diego Andaluz. Hey. LV Taylor. Hello. And Ricardo Gallegos. Hello, guys. On today's episode, we are discussing the latest edition of the Toronto International Film Festival, the first major fall festival in North America. Let's begin with some shorts. All right. Um, I watch a bunch of shorts, not as many as I wanted to, but there's still some very good stuff to be seen. There's this one uh, that was my favorite. It's called Found Me. Uh, It's about a boy, well, a man that, you know, he has a pretty cool life, has a girlfriend, has a job, but there's something missing. And one day he stumbles upon a wrestling show and he falls in love with it. He becomes obsessed. And all of this is done through a pretty cool montage uh, with, um, I can't remember the band's name, but it's a, a very cool song in the background. And I saw a lot of people saying, yeah, this short was pretty bad. This sucked. This was my favorite because this perfectly captured, I am a huge wrestling fan, a huge. And this managed to capture the exact same feeling you have when you discover wrestling. It's very weird and there's nothing like it in the world, but you become obsessed and you have to watch every match and you have to, 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 to be part of it. And the, this short did exactly that. It, it represented my initial obsession with professional wrestling in a very visceral and, and fun way too. So th- this, this was my, my favorite. I think you, you watched it, right, Diego? Yeah, yeah, I saw Found Me. And I have to say, I wasn't in the camp who thought it was a bad short, but I didn't find it as like wowing as you did. It might be just the fact that maybe for wrestling fans, it just hits a different note. But at least for me, I found the visuals to be good but the plot was kind of inconsequential. And well, it's a short film, so I guess I should expect that. But honestly, my favorite short films are the ones that are able to kind of transcend those issues. And Found Me was unfortunately not one of those. Ones that I did like though were Rules for Werewolves, which actually stars Stranger Things in Wolfhard. That was one that even though it was short, it did have actually, some of the filmmaking was great. Like it had some pretty good tracking shots because it's just about all these kids kind of robbing a house. And the plot kind of left was left a little bit ambiguous, but I still liked it a lot. And apart from that, also Dave, which was actually Zach Woods' territorial to debut. And Zach Woods, I don't know if you know him, but he stars in The Office and Silicon Valley. And he directs Will Ferrell here. And it's also, it's only six minutes long, but it still is able to do more with its plot than Found Me. So that's why... Found Me was probably one of my least favorite films. I'm glad to say that I don't think I actually saw a single bad film at TIFF, but it was still kind of just, I'd say like a six out of 10. Like it was pretty, just not impactful enough for me to truly be able to say that it was one of my favorites of the festival. Another one I, I watched that I think was pretty cool is Nabo Sande, The Musician. This is uh, an animated short from France and it goes all the way to Persia. On um, uh, it, it tells a story about Mongol the, the Mongolis invasions 
Um, I really don't want to spoil it because I think this one has a, cha a shot to getting, getting into the Oscar race. But it was very heartbreaking and it has this musical presence about it that it's very humane, that it's very nostalgic. And I, I, I really like when any type of media talks about the Mongolian invasions because that's one of the biggest genocides that there was in the history of humanity that through the passing of the years, it has been forgotten. So this little uh, short, animated short, managed to bring back the, the, the painful memories of, of the people that suffered these invasions. And it's called Nabo Sande, the musician. Keep it on your radars because I think it's brilliant. I also really liked um, a short called Sing Me a Lullaby. Again, I think this has a shot of getting into the best documentary short race for the Oscars. It's about a woman trying to find her grandma. Her mother and her grandmother were separated as childs. And this woman that's, that is a filmmaker tries to, to get them to meet. And it's sad, but also heartwarming, you know, this history of how did these two people got separated? It's very interesting and heartwarming and heartbreaking. And it offers a little peek into the Chinese culture too. So it's called Sing Me a Lullaby. And uh, you should take a look at it. And another one that I think was outstanding was Scars. This was uh, directed by Alex Anna. It's from Canada and France. This is like a live action and animation uh, combination where the director does a uh, powerful reflections on the mental on her own mental health and depression through the history of her own scars lb i think you saw this too yeah i did and i i agree with what you're saying scars was was really well done i thought it was a great combination of like the the animation and then the the documentary within this short film and I did get a chance to to interview um, the director after watching it and just listening to her talk about her personal struggles and journey with um, with self mutilation and self harm was was very impactful. So yeah, so overall, I didn't get to catch many shorts. Um, I think Scars and maybe one other were the only two that I I caught. But Scars was was very well done. One that I do have to say that. Possibly, because I know before I said that I didn't see a single bad film in the festival, but one that very closely skewed the line was Benjamin Benny Ben. And I wasn't wanting to love it because it did seem like it was going to be some ambiguous type of short. And I like ambiguity in what I watch. But this was just too unclear. And while it was made well, the story was nowhere to be seen. And if there was a no story... Way. Have you seen it, Ricardo? Yeah, I, I think it's fantastic because it's it's about a boy he's afro-american and he's going to a job interview and it depicts the struggle afro-american people have in america in a search for any type of job because you you have to juggle with the pressure of being afro-american then the pressure of being young the pressure of being racially discriminated when you're trying to to make a living when you're trying to to make a career out of something and this guy he's just super nervous he's 
rehearsing what he's going to do at the interview. He falls down. There's like a little accident. And, and the, the thing is, he has such a tiny little accident, but it means so much because this little accident could, could change his entire career because he, he's already facing discrimination. He's already uh, facing all these racial obstacles. And now he's... His only shot at getting a job is screwed thanks to a tiny little incident. And I think the short does a great job of, of getting into this anxiety-riddled mentality. And it, it, I think it was very, very powerful. Yeah, I, I really liked it. I mean, I gotta say, like, I wasn't really expecting to hear that, but this might just be one of the few times that just with something that someone has said on the podcast that might have just changed my opinion. Because I actually didn't get that read from it at all. But now that you're mentioning it, I totally see what you're talking about. But I do know that there's one short that has been getting a lot of praise on both Twitter and Letterboxd and pretty much everywhere I see. And I think, Alina, you saw that one as well. Yeah, I believe you're talking about still processing. Uh, I'm in the same boat as LV. I only, I only watched still processing for shorts. I didn't catch any of the others. So... The director, Sophie Romvari, I believe is her name. She is a Toronto-based filmmaker, and I happen to follow her on Twitter. And so I watched the film because she, like, sent me a link for it. And it was, like, really, really beautiful. The film is about, like, her going through a box of, like, family photographs and memories for, like, the very first time. And these are, like, family mementos that haven't been looked at and like, over a decade. So it's basically just her going through this box of photographs. And you wouldn't think that that would be like, very interesting, but it's really an exploration of grief. Because Romvari happened to like lose two of her older brothers under like, she never says what it is, but you can tell that it's just like, sad circumstances. And it's a really beautiful, like, just portrait of grief. Like, she isn't shy at all about, like, holding back any of her emotions. Like, you see her, like, crying throughout the film, and you see her, like, filming one of her anxiety attacks, and it really, really struck me because I lost an aunt this year, and I lost my grandfather last year, and that was the first time in my family that we've experienced, like, a significant loss. So, it felt like the way that she managed to like convey this film is you kind of like grieve with her for whatever else is going on in your life. So I was really happy that I got like the chance to see it. And I really encourage like everyone to like seek still processing out. So I'd like to hear what like everyone else thought about it if you managed to catch it. So yeah, I found that this was a short that you could kind of tell the budget constraints a little more than the others. That's the one negative I would have. But apart from that, it was very, very well made. And I, re I found it really touching. I'd actually compare it to Arrival in terms of kind of how it explores its themes. But I think it was just, it was one of the most ambitious for sure. And it was just, it was really touching, like I said before. Like it was one that really impacted me and more than deserves all the praise it's getting. So it sounds like there was plenty of amazing shorts at a tiff. I'm a little mad at myself that I didn't catch more than one. I definitely need to seek out Found Me as a professional wrestling fan. 
like I'm really I'm disappointed that I didn't know about that like when the festival is on um but let's move on to documentaries because I know there is quite a bit of those to go through as well do you want to start with MLK FBI so one of the most talked about documentaries of the fest was MLK FBI it's a very straightforward premise it's this documentary that explains the way the FBI headed by J. Edgar Hoover uh, how they spied on Martin Luther King in order to try to bring him down they wanted to find dirt on him and uh, and make him like a a public humiliation out of him and it's directed by Sam Pollard who has uh, been editor for a bunch of uh, Spike Lee films he is uh, he, he does a tremendous job here it's a very well edited uh, film with a lot of insightful interviews it, it, it's a terrific work because it really explains with a lot of details every step that the FBI took to, to try to spy on this man. And my only issue, I mean, issue sounds a little harsh, but I, I didn't learn a ton. This is all stuff that I already knew. You know, the United States, unfortunately, there's a lot of racism. FBI is dirty, yes, we know that. It does a great job of explaining it, but on a personal note, I don't think I, I learned a lot about it. I think the biggest learning that there is is that uh, during that period of time, the American people were agreeing with the FBI. They wanted Martin Luther King out. They hated him. The, 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 the majority of the American nation wanted him out. They didn't want anything to do with him. That was like the biggest uh, revelation per se, but I didn't learn a ton. However, as I mentioned earlier, this is a tremendously edited and put together documentary. So I saw it as well. And again, I agree with everything that Ricardo just said. I thought it was well done, but again, I didn't learn anything new from this. It was all pretty much things that, that we've been hearing since the assassination. And I think the, what this film really did was just kind of confirm a lot of the the things that we had already heard, just because they had some of the the unclassified documents that they were able to show in the documentary where it was actually spelled out like what they were doing. But yeah, overall, it was, it was a good a good doc, but but nothing really new to learn. But another great documentary that I saw was Inconvenient Indian which was directed by Michelle Lattimore. Um, this one was really good. I thought it was well done. It was interesting the way that it was made. It was kind of a, a movie within a movie. And yeah, I mean, this one just stood out to me because it was all about Native peoples and Native Americans kind of changing the narrative about um, who they are and what they are and what they stand for because for so long, like Western American culture and white people in general have been, I guess, defining and telling the story of native people. And so what we all know is just basically what has been put out there through pop culture and media, movies, television, and that sort of stuff. And it's not, it's not the true story. Um, and so this, this film just kind of shines a light and gives 
Native peoples a chance to to really tell their own story and put it in their own words. And I thought it was was really well done. I managed to catch uh, Inconvenient Indian as well. And I think this is my favorite documentary out of TIFF. Like, it was just really beautifully well done. And it's based off Thomas King's book of the same name. And I'm pretty sure that he also narrated the documentary. And he just has, like, just a really powerful voice that just, like, captivates you and brings you into everything. And I think Inconvenient Indian is a really important documentary for, like, everyone to see, especially settlers. So this year, well, I grew up close in close to uh, a reserve in southern Ontario called, called Tyananega Mohawk Territory. And despite, like, growing up so close to a place, I didn't know a single person who was, like, actually Indigenous or, like, I just never came across it. And growing up in school, we, like, only focused on, like, residential schools in Canada and didn't really focus on anything else. So this year, I've been really trying to focus on, like, Indigenous issues and Indigenous rights because yes, I'm a woman of color, but I'm not Indigenous. I'm still a settler on this land, and I think it's very important for non-Indigenous people of color to understand that, like, we still play a role in, like, settler colonialism. Like, we are in Canada and the U.S., for example, because of colonialism, if you really think about it. So, and I think Inconvenient Indian is a good, like, first dive into it because it covers just so many things and it talks about a lot of different indigenous nations like there's a little bit of focus on like the Inuit and like the Plains Indians and it's just it's a really like great all-encompassing documentary. Yeah so I saw two documentaries at TIFF and one which was mentioned before was MLK FBI. I found it not necessarily to be that informative like you guys mentioned before, like pretty much everything there was something that I knew. I did like how they kind of explored the tapes that haven't really been released yet and kind of ponder what effect that may have towards the end. But I really feel this film would benefit more from being kind of like an after school special or something like that, because maybe younger people aren't as educated on these terms. And for those who don't know about it, this would be a great way to kind of delve into that. But for those who are a little bit more informed about the issues going on in those times, I wouldn't say it's worth a watch. Another one that I was really anticipating, and it, it was great, but it left me just a tad bit disappointed, was 76 Days. So it's just kind of about the coronavirus in Wuhan in the first 76 days of, its, of the breakout. And while it was very well made, and it just it captured what it was going for really well, I found that it stayed in the hospital for the majority of the film and it could have benefited from kind of showing more of the, the greater effects of the pandemic around the city of Wuhan. Like I know at the beginning, it actually starts with possibly one of the most heartbreaking scenes in, of the entire festival of just this grieving person just seeing as her, I think her father is taken away. And I thought it was gonna get even more shocking or more kind of heartbreaking as it went on, but it kind of diminished after that. And I found that maybe it was just, I wasn't really expecting what they were going for. And honestly, I feel like maybe documentaries that I know Neon is putting out a documentary called Totally Under Control, which seems to be a little bit more wide reaching that that might be more what I was looking for. 
But considering what it was trying to do, 76 days was really good. And if you're kind of interested in seeing what's happened in the hospitals in Wuhan, it's definitely worth a watch. I know, Ricardo, you saw 76 days, correct? Yes, I did. And I loved it. I think it's a front runner for the Oscars just because of the subject matter it's handling. I agree. It's very, very good. And uh, another thing we should talk about is, is that these people didn't have permission from the government to shoot the documentary. In fact, one of the directors, one of the cinematographers is anonymous. He, it was just a, a journalist that didn't want to give his name, but he risked his, uh, his life and his uh, freedom to shoot all this footage inside of four hospitals in Wuhan, who, that is the ground zero of the COVID pandemic. And uh, I absolutely love this because Yes, it's very heartbreaking, but it managed to give you hope. The, the, the editing, somehow, among all this tragedy, it creates a sense of hope and finds humor and the humanity of all the doctors. You, know, you watch them using little, how do you say, globes to, to give to the patients and tell them that they're going to be okay. They talk with the grandmas, with the grandpas about how they are their own family now. They try to always help them get through the tragedy in a very humane way. They are not only doctors, they are psychiatrists, they are therapists. And this is extraordinary the, the way they managed to, to convey all of that. Among the tragedy, you find this history of courageousness, humanity, and, and again, you have to really watch this in order to understand the way it, it handles the team. It's very important. Uh, again, I think it's going to be a front runner for the Oscars. And I just wanted, I, I want to ask something to, to Alina and Elbia about Inconvenient Indians, which is, I, I loved what it was doing. I loved the first 30 minutes, but I, I am very sensitive towards uh, animal cruelty and I had to stop it. Uh, there's this super graphic scene about, you know, a butcher of a seal and Here's my controversial take, if you want to say it like that. Is it okay, is it ethical to shoot, to murder an animal just for the sake of a documentary? I get what it was trying to do. It's trying to, uh, to position the traditions of the indigenous people that were ripped away from them, from the American people. But is it ethical to just murder an animal? Are you just doing what Hollywood said you were doing, that you are savages by murdering an animal that way? Or am I just being completely exaggerating? <laughs> uh, I, I understand where you're coming from, Ricardo. I've been uh, vegan for four and a half years. So the seal scene was, it was a lot. It was very graphic. But I think it was okay to put in the documentary. Like, it seems like that Michelle Latimer happened to be following this man as he was, like, doing a hunt. And then later on, you see him, like, give part of the seal meat to another household. I'm not sure if it's, like, his family or, like, his neighbors or just, like, people in his community. But you see him, like, giving the meat to other people. And yes, it's 
is graphic for like a non like Inuk person to watch that. But I think it's also important for us to understand that, especially in Northern Canada, food prices are just like astronomically high. Like sometimes it's like $15 for like a single apple. It's very, very difficult for them to have like fresh food up there. So that's why they rely so much on hunting. I think maybe the documentary could have conveyed that a little bit better so people can like understand like why. But again, it is a graphic scene, but he's using all of like each and every part of the seal for like his like family and community. So I think it's okay. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I can definitely agree with that. I had another cool conversation about it with, with another media inclusion journalist from Mexico to Oralia. And she told me just that. And I, I agree. Like this, I mean, if she, if the director purposely shoots the killing of an animal, I'm very angry <laughs> about it and I cannot forgive it. But you know, if they are just documenting the process, it's very important because it tells this, it's documenting, documenting this process of how indigenous people hunt, of how they lived. And it's a very important part of the culture uh, to, to know about, just, just as you perfectly, perfect explained. Uh, what other document? I, I, I want to talk briefly, I think I was the only one that saw the truffle hunters. Oh, this, this was so lovely. Is there anyone to see this documentary and not uh, fall in love with its characters. It's about uh, uh, um, three old men that hunt truffles in the woods of the Northern Italy. And in order to do that, they are always accompanied by their lovely dogs. So you get to know these people and the relationships with their dogs and it's absolutely lovely you've got this little man that uh, you know the documentary shots him in in his uh, in his living room and he's always talking to to her dog and he tells her how much he loves her and that you know i'm old i'm going to die i have to find you the best how possible because i love you you are like my daughter you know it's, it's gorgeously shot and there's a lot of very impressive um, shots too. There's one scene where the director just put a GoPro in a dog and then the dog goes out there hunting in the woods and you see everything from the dog's perspective and that's lovely. And this is beautiful. You know, it's very Italian, like an audiovisual feast to the eyes and a love letter to the relationships between dogs and humans. So if you, I think this one also has a shot of getting far in the Oscar race just because it's so lovely and it's getting so much praise. It's got like a 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. So whenever it comes out, watch it and just, um, no, no, watch your heart grow full because it's truly something very, very cool. And I guess we can talk about I Am Greta now, um, the Greta Thornberg. Thornberg documentary that is going to come out in Hulu soon. Uh, what do you guys think about this? So I Am Greta is the only other documentary I managed to catch at TIFF, I believe. And I'm very into like envir the environment and like protecting the world and all these things. So I was really like heavily following Greta's story as it was happening. And 
I think that I Am Greta just came, like, a bit too soon, because she was, like, literally everywhere. Like, she was speaking at the UN. Everybody knew her name, and everybody knew what she was doing. I don't think it, we needed to have, like, a documentary, because everybody, like, already knew what she was, do, like, doing already. Like, it didn't feel like it brought anything new, so I was, I felt, like, pretty disappointed with it. It felt like maybe they should have, like, waited a little bit to put this documentary out. I agree. I agree completely with you. <laughs> I think it's, it tries to give an intimate portrait of Greta, but there's clearly not access to her. Her father is always there. You rarely get to peek inside her brain. It's a very verbal stuff. And, you know, I'm a huge, uh, as you may have guessed from all the stuff I said, I, I, I love nature and I'm a huge advocate for uh, taking care of our planet. And this documentary didn't even really explain what climate change is all about, didn't really exp explain her motivations, I think. And if someone that doesn't believe in Greta Thunberg, if someone doesn't believe in climate change, if someone that thinks she's a hoax watches this, he's not going to change his mind or her mind. I, I, I promise you that because it's do it does absolutely nothing to, to, to change the perception about Greta Thunberg. Yeah, I totally agree with what you just said. I saw this one as well and I don't think that it was, I agree that it was maybe a little too early and it didn't really add anything to the conversation or my understanding of her. And to your point, Ricardo, like if someone is a client change denier or they don't really uh, get behind Greta and her mission, like this movie does kind of do a disservice to her in that because there are certain times um, and other people have said this on social media where it kind of feels like Greta is just like a prop of her parents and they're like trying to, to push her out to do all of this and watching the film, like you could think that at times. Um, and I just think that, I don't know, maybe this, this film just kind of hurts more than it helps. So those are all the documentaries that we watched from TIFF. Uh, let's move on to features, and we're going to start with international features first. So this festival actually had a surprising amount of well-made international features that really put up a difficult, because I, I, I have to do an Oscar prediction article for Awards Watch, and it really, all these international features put up a really difficult decision in terms of who I'd nominate. I feel there are tons of Oscar-worthy candidates here that all could really go to win depending on how they're campaigned. So it was a really packed and a really stacked lineup for international features. Some highlights that I saw were Memory House, which that one I don't think it has a chance, but it was still really well made. It's kind of, I'd say it's kind of a more subtle version of Bakurao in terms of that it explores kind of the same themes and it it's kind of very mellow and it just slowly starts building up and building up until the end is kind of just shocking just all out in terms of violence and stuff but apart from that i mean if we're going off of just the the violence one that has to be mentioned is new order i know that some people here haven't been able to see it so i won't spoil much but it i came in going almost completely blind and that is definitely the best way to go into it it's just, I mean, the best comparison I'd say is not even thematically, but 
just structurally, it's very similar to Parasite in terms of that it kind of starts off mellow and then it just kind of becomes in an instant just becomes super chaotic and it's even i'd say less subtle than parasite like parasite is definitely a much more refined film and this one's more in your face but for this film it definitely works because something that i have noticed is that many critics come familiar with latin american history do tend to like it because they find it accurate an accurate portrait of kind of what goes on in latin american countries where there's a lot of disarray but critics that weren't as familiar found it just kind of to be shocking and vapid and just really holding no substance. So one thing that I am afraid of is how well this will carry to American audiences because really those who are kind of looking for something like Parasite, if they're not, if they don't go in with the mentality that it's kind of very Latin American based, then they may not really truly appreciate it because like I said, it's not subtle, but it shouldn't be subtle because this is one of those few films where being subtle would have hurt it and being just so in your face really helped its message. And did you, I know, Alina, did you see New Order? Yeah, I did. Uh, Ricardo wants to say something first and then I'll talk about it. Oh, okay. Um, I just want to say because I, I, I live in Mexico. I am Mexican. And I, this Mexican film directed by a Mexican filmmaker was my, my most anticipated film of Tiff. And I couldn't watch it. Uh, it was restricted uh, to only, I think, uh, US and the UK, which is completely ridiculous. We, we are part of the media inclusion, but the producers of the film, the Mexican producers of the film said, no, only Americans can review this Mexican film about Mexico City. And it was uh, so annoying because then I contacted the distributors in Mexico and they said, oh, no, I'm sorry. Uh, we don't have a screener for you. There's no digital way to watch it. You'll have to come to the theater to watch it. And I'm like, what the fuck? They're like, the purpose of these digital film festivals is to not risk your life, right? No, but they want you to go watch this film to a movie theater and risk your life. You know, I, I'm not sure if you know, but Mexico has, is like the third, fourth uh, country with the most coronavirus cases in the world. And it was so heartbreaking to see that. It was, to be honest, pretty annoying the way it, I was treated by, by the Mexican press. And this, again, just to, you know, uh, shine a little light of how, how tough or how different stuff can be because I see a lot of people complaining about, I am not getting the screener for this. I'm not getting the screener for that. In Mexico, there is no such thing as screeners. Like distributors don't care about our health and they, I want us to, to go outside and risk our life. And that absolutely sucks. That's all I wanted to say about a new order. It's like this little <laughs> thorn I have on, on my side, which was very, very disheartening. But um, Alina, go, go ahead and talk about new order. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, that's a real big shame. I hope you get the chance to see it soon, Ricardo, because it's definitely a film that's for like Latin America. Um, I'm not Latina, uh, but I was a history major in university. And one of my like, areas of interest was Caribbean history and then like Latin American history like overlaps with that because like my family is like Anglo-Caribbean like Guyanese and whatever so I, I consider like Latin America my neighbors so I, I like Latin American history a lot and I think because I have like a good background in like Latin American like coups and like revolutions 
I like liked this film better than like a non-Latino like film critic would because Diego and I have talked about this film like a lot before like recording and we both like made the observation that people who don't like really know very much about like the region's history don't really like understand like how violent like Latin American history is and I think if you haven't seen this film yet I think you should take the time to um just like google like Latin American like revolutions revolutionaries and like coups like look up names like Salvador Allende and Simón de Bolívar and like even Che Guevara and then you'll get like a better understanding of what the region's history is like. It's like very unstable. And I think one thing that is, I think a, a bit controversial is I think Americans like don't know how much their country has like interfered in with the Latin American region. Like a lot of the coups were like backed by like the US government. And I think it's a real shame that Americans don't seem to know that. So yes, bef before going into this film, I invite you to like, to, to take a little bit of a history lesson. So yes, I, I agree with everything that you guys have been saying about this film. As an American and a non-Latino, um, I am not as well-versed in Latin American history. So I didn't go in knowing all that stuff, but as, a former economics and international politics major in college, I am familiar with how America goes in and kind of destroys democracies in, in countries in the name of democracy. So I was familiar with that aspect of it, but as someone who is not as well versed in the particularities of this history, to me, it did come off as the message was kind of lost in the, the gore and the violence of the film for me. But I think that's why things like the, the media inclusion initiative is so important because you have critics talking about this film who are familiar with that. So they can talk about the nuances of the film and how it fits into the culture and how it should be um, processed and understood. And that's why that diversity is just so important. And yeah, just to bring it back to Ricardo's point, I did notice that the other, because there were quite a few Mexican critics in the Media Inclusion Initiative, and I did notice that some others did say similar things to Ricardo in terms of that the Mexican distributor was holding it back. I do know that it actually just got a, a Mexican release on October 22nd, but I believe that's theatrical only, and they aren't sending screeners. But one thing that that does signal is that originally me and a bunch of other people weren't quite sure that it was going to get that Oscar international feature push because the Mexican Academy does seem to be a little more conservative in terms of what it nominates. But recently it got acquired by Neon and that is huge in terms of that people are now kind of seeing like, oh, Neon may take a similar strategy as they did with Parasite. And if it successfully works, that could lead them to get nominated for international feature. And the fact that it's getting a Mexican release so early, when I believe originally uh, Michel Franco, the director, said it was going to be in 2021 and now they're pushing it forward, does seem like they're really confident. I found that apparently most Mexican critics don't seem to resonate well with, with Franco. So I really don't know if there's going to be a wide audience for this. 
but like Alina was saying, do your research, look up, uh, for instance, like the Mexican massacre of 1968, similar things going on. I think it was actually shown for a little bit in Roma. If you see the protest scene in Roma, that's actually part of the whole Mexican massacre of 1968 where students were kind of just like massacred. They were protesting and they were just annihilated. So definitely do some research. And if you do some good research, or at least have some sort of understanding, like you don't necessarily need to be Latino, but as LB was saying, like if you just have some sort of like background in that, or even if you just do a quick Google search, you should be able to enjoy it very well. So what other international features did you guys see at this festival? Um, before I talk about some of the most cool international themes, I just want to say that a conversation about who Mexico is going to select for the representative in the Oscars is very interesting because New Order is getting all this praise and getting all these uh, huge reactions, but it seems like we are going to send away I'm No Longer Here, which is a Netflix film. It recently won, I think, 10 or 11 Ariel Awards. That's our Mexican Oscars. And it got the, it got the Netflix push. And it's a, a little more subtle. subtle. Uh, so it's going to be a, a very interesting conversation. Just keep an eye out on that because those whatever we choose, I think it's going to be a pretty strong contender. And... Um, one of my favorite films of the festivals uh, was Cuba Dis Aida. This film is for, from Bosnia and Herzegovina. And it's a retelling of the genocide in Srebrenica, Bosnia, and, and from 1995, where uh, Serbian soldiers murdered 8,372 Muslim men. Um, this was an um, ethnic cleanse out of the Bosnian civil war. And this is directed by Yasmila Shbanik. And it's incredible, it's harrowing, it's brutal. It's a movie full of tension and cowardice and horror and lies and ignorance. And it's a, an absolute must watch because it's a retelling of a genocide, of uh, how intolerance, can destroy humanity if left unchecked. And Jasna Durisic stars as a United Nations translator, and she has to found, find a way to protect his husband, his two sons, uh, her two sons, because the Serbs are coming. And you know, when the Serbs arrive, to the place they are sheltering, all hell is going to break loose. And this is like a gut punch of a film. You can't take your eyes off the tragedy. I think this has, again, a big shot of getting into the international Oscar nomination. It has already been selected by Bosnia and it's one of the best films I've seen all year. Um, and I think, uh, LB, did you watch it? I did. And again, I agree with what you're saying. Um, this film was very impactful. It was well done. It's, a, it's the story of we're just watching a mother's frantic, I guess, search and journey to protect her family. And in the end, like it definitely left me like absolutely wrecked. Like I would, I just sat in my chair and like cried for a solid five minutes. So if you do get a chance to watch this, like definitely have 
a palate cleanser for afterwards because it is it's a rough watch but it's a a watch that everyone should should do um it's a film that should be seen and hopefully one day humanity can get to the the point where we are no longer repeating history because we've seen the devastation that it can do um so yeah this was a really good film did you see that one diego one of the other foreign films i watched was i watched apples i think it's it's like a greek film by uh, christos niku i hope i'm saying his name right but i'm probably not and he's worked with yorgos latham latham shit I can't say his name, Yorgos Lanthimos. He's worked with him before. Uh, (laughs) So it was very, like, reminiscent of, like, uh, Killing of a Sacred Deer and things like that. But it was a lot more, like, subtle and delicate. And it's about this, they kind of have a sort of a plague going on there in, like, this, like, alternate world. But instead of, like, people getting, like, a disease or, like, a sickness, they get, like, amnesia and they don't, like, understand like they, they like completely lose their like sense of identity and it's like if your like family or like friends don't like claim you you go into this like government like research thing and the like doctors or like researchers or whatever basically like get him to do like all these like random tasks like go see a horror movie or like go dance in a nightclub and like try and pick up a girl and they're basically like trying to create this like new identity for him the the, the main character and I thought it was, like, a very, like, interesting, like, take on, like, identity and memory and all these things. I feel like memory is kind of, like, a theme in this year's TIFF. Like, there's been a lot of films about memory. So I did, it was, Apples was kind of a slow film, but I did enjoy it in the end. Yeah, I also saw Apples. It was actually the first film I saw in the festival. And yeah, I could definitely tell that Yorgos Lanthimos influences, and I believe this is his first film, but, and for a first film, it's quite well made. The one thing that I would say that is kind of missing from the whole, like, Lanthimos thing is that it does, as you were saying, it is a little bit passive and does miss that Lanthimos, like, bite and, like, that thing that, like, truly grips you and pulls you through it. So I feel like as he evolves, we're going to see great things to come from him. But I do feel like it's just a little too derivative of Lanthimos. And he does need to find maybe his own identity, just like the main character of the film. And another industry select that I saw, because, yeah, there were quite a few films that were actually only available to press an industry and not audiences, because I think they're looking for buyers. Another film that I saw was Kill It and Leave This Town. Well, I saw it at Berlin. But I, I rewatched it here because it's just it's just so well made. It's a Polish animated film that was 15 years in the making. And honestly, the plot is like kind of hard to describe. You just have to experience it firsthand. But the best way to describe it is kind of a mix between a Lynch film and maybe like the work of Mark Chagall. I don't know if you guys know him. He's an artist. But it, it takes a lot of influences from different mediums. And that is something that I enjoy. And it can drag for a little bit, but it is very surreal. And if you're kind of into those surreal experimental type of films, and that is definitely one you want to check out when it comes out. I don't think it has a chance to win the Oscar for Best Animated Feature. I mean, honestly, if the Oscar wants to nominate some adult fare, it could do well, but 
it's very crudely made, which is good for what it's going for, but it's just, it might not resonate with uh, awards voters. I think it will resonate with critics, but not really awards for voters. So have you guys, what other ones have you guys seen so far? So there were two other um, international films that I saw and I really liked. One was Night of the Kings um, from the Ivory Coast in France. It's just a, a beautiful like ode to the tradition of oral storytelling. And it just blends so many different genres, like there are elements of Greek theater and um, dance and, and fantasy and all sorts of stuff just kind of mixed into this story. And it was, it was beautifully done. And it was just something, something different to watch. Um, another one that I really liked was uh, A Good Man from France. Um, there was a little bit of a controversy and backlash over this one in the casting of a cisgendered female, uh, Naomi Merlant, in the lead role of Benjamin, who is a transgendered man in the film, but it was a very touching and emotional film about um, a couple who really wants to to start a family and have a child and just kind of the the heartbreak and the the process of going through that um, where the cisgendered female is unable to carry a child and Ben is um, he has already gone through his transition, but he is still able to um, to carry the child. And so just going through that process and and kind of dealing with the consequences of that decision and just really like going for what it is that you want out of life and what would make you happy. Um, it was beautifully done, heartfelt. And uh, I think that everyone should watch that one. Yeah, I watched A Good Man too. And it's very lovely. It's going to be quite controversial for, for obvious reasons, but I think it comes from a good place. And it's, it's absolutely lovely. I, again, I, I, I agree with everything Elby just said. Uh, another film I watched that I, I really, really, really liked is The Best is Yet to Come. This is a Chinese film about journalistic integrity. You know, ironically, this film about censorship comes from, from China. Um, it's about this journalist that is struggling, struggling to get a job because he didn't have a college education. He's getting discrimination against him. He finally gets a big break. He knocks it out of the park with his first assignment. And then he encounters a, re a report, you know, a, 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 a research work that involves discrimination against hepatitis B carriers. And then it becomes this struggle. Should I um, focus on getting my job of being a good little nice journalist in this secure place? Or should I keep my journalistic integrity and fight for what it's right? And it's wonderful. This hit all, all my right notes. It's in the veins of Spotlight, all the President's Men, you know, all these works that highlight the importance of, of journalism in a very good light. And you know, sometimes it is difficult to find the, the good side of things during these dark times of fake news, but stories like The Best Is Yet To Come really 
they they restore my faith and humanity and make made me remember that you know a a a pen and a, a a guy a gal with a good moral compass are enough to change the life of millions so yeah i, I absolutely love the best is yet to come i didn't love the night of the kings but i think it's very cool it's a, it's a very cool promise it just left me a little bit you know dry um it's going to represent uh, ivory coast in the oscars and neon picked it up so it should be coming out soon um but i think we should all talk about another round right mats mikkelsen uh what a great great little film this is about a bunch of depressed professors that friends and professors that are trying to prove these wild hypotheses that the human isn't born with enough blood alcohol level so every day they get drunk in order to improve their social and professional lives it stars Mats Mikkelsen it's directed by Thomas Winterberg who directed The Hunt uh, a couple of years ago and, and this was so much fun I mean it's funny but it, it isn't too funny it's it it has a good balance between drama and and humor and it's all pushed by a tremendous performance by Bats Mikkelsen. I think it's one of the top five performances I've seen this year and I don't want to spoil it but the third act is just tremendous. What, what did you guys think about another round? So I also caught this one and Mess Mikkelsen is one of my favorite actors. I just love him like He's so good in Hannibal and he was really great in The Hunt. And so since like another round is directed by the same director as The Hunt, I was really looking forward to it. And it just like, it lived up to my expectations. Like I totally agree with you, Ricardo, like how it was like funny, but not too funny. Like it was just a really like unique story and it gets like really chaotic. And I just thought it was like really funny how these like group of like four Danish men um like try and justify alcoholism with a science experiment like it, it was it's just like a really like it's a fun movie like and i think i needed like a good time on like the night i watched it and it just like it totally lived up to that yeah i agree um i enjoyed another round a lot at first i was a, a little um i guess concerned that it was just like an ode to alcoholism um, but once you, you make it all the way through, you kind of see that it's, it's much more than just that. It's really a story about being happy and kind of living life to the fullest. Um, so I, I really did enjoy, enjoy this film and the, the end where, uh, Mads Mikkelsen, we get to see some of his, uh, his great dance skills was, uh, very enjoyable. I felt that, well, Coming into the festival, I feel like this film was one of the most anticipated ones. I think that's something that we can all agree on. And I found that it came a little bit short considering how anticipated it was. But overall, I did find it to be very enjoyable. It was a little bit slow in the first parts. And I was worried, similar to LB, that it was going to be a little bit too much praise on alcohol and, oh, like you should just always be consuming alcohol. But I liked how it eventually kind of turned into more of like it shows it's a very nuanced portrait of alcohol. It shows the good parts of it, but it also shows everything that can go wrong if you fall into that kind of life. And so I feel like it was a very complete portrait of alcohol, which I think is what 
Thomas Vinterberg, I think that, or Vinterberg, I think that's how you pronounce his name. I'm not quite sure. Sorry if I butchered it. But I feel like that's what he was going for. But I feel like it was a very enjoyable film. I feel, I don't know if it will get into Best International Feature, maybe with its star power with Mads Mikkelsen. But it was still, it was worth a watch. And I, I recommend it for everyone looking for a good optimistic time. Um, and I think a uh, last one film we should talk about, it's Fauna by Canadian-Mexican director Nicolás Pereda. This is a very weird, absurd satire that is trying to convey this message of violence and how violence is now ingrained in the Mexican con conscience. It has a lot of awkward situations, a lot of dry humor. This is one that if you hated it, I do not blame you. If you love it, same. Because it's such a weird stuff. It's like a meta conversation. Like you start with one story with a set of actors and then it becomes another story with the same set of actors in different roles. I don't know, there, there's this scene about, I don't want to spoil it because it's very funny, but you know, it's one of those type of movies that get you thinking and it is very light. It's only like one hour long, but I think it achieves its job of getting you to, to think about how, how violence is so, so usual in, in Mexico right now. And I, I don't know, what did you guys think? Because this is a very, very strange little film. Yeah, I saw this one as well. And it was a little too meta for me. Like it just kind of went over my head. I saw it and by the time it finished, I was just like, I'm not quite sure what I just saw. So yeah, those, those are my only thoughts about this film. That's the perfect review of the film right there. Because <laughs> it, it, it's... Fauna is just like that. Like what? I mean, it's not going to change the world. Like, but I, I, I don't know. I don't know who, who else watched this. <laughs> I also managed to catch Fauna and I agree with LV. Like it, it totally went over my head, but that Narcos gag was really, really funny. So I think like that scene alone is like worth checking out if you've seen Narcos. It was just like, that was hilarious. So it, it had a lot of good humor, even though like the actual like subject matter just like didn't work for me. So I think that's all of our international like foreign language films wrapped up. So let's shift to the our last section, which are the English films of TIFF. I wanted to start off with Beans. It's a Canadian film and it was one of my favorites from the festival. It's directed by Tracy Deer, and I think that was her first time directing something. So it's a coming of age film about a little like indigenous girl, she's Mohawk, and she lives in Quebec. And she happens to be, uh, her coming of age story takes place during the Oka crisis. And I don't know if the Oka crisis is something that people like know about outside of Canada, but a very, very brief explanation of it is It was basically, it was the Oka crisis was basically like a land rights dispute and some like French Quebec company was trying to expand a golf course on disputed Mohawk land. 
and this expansion of the golf course was going to be going into a Mohawk burial ground. So it's obviously like very sacred ground and all the Mohawk people were like, no, don't build a golf course on our ancestors. And of course, like, like always, Canada treats our indigenous people very, very badly. And it just escalated into like this huge, like, I think 70 something day standoff and like a person like died. And it was just like a very, very like heavy situation. And this happened in 1990. So it was one of the first times that a land rights dispute was like publicized in like the Canadian media because it was like one of the first times that it could be like filmed and like followed very, very closely. So in Beans, the main character, she, I think she's, she looks pretty young. I think she's like 11 or 12. She like just finds herself in this situation because her parents go to like the front lines of like the Oka crisis. And she starts, Beans starts hanging out with some like older Mohawk children. And she like starts trying to act like more grown up as she is. And then also she has to face like a lot of racism and stuff from like the neighboring like white French community. Like there are points when her and her family are in a grocery store and they aren't allowed to like buy anything. Like they're basically like trying to get the Mohawk to like starve. There are points when they're like going back on like their boat and like they're surrounded by like a group of like Quebecois and they're like spitting on them. And it's just like, it's a very like sad and heavy film. Like I cried like six times throughout this, but I think a really amazing thing about Beans is for, other than like those couple scenes, most of the like racism that Tracy Deer shows from like the white French Quebec people is archival footage. Like it's, these were actually like real people who said that the Mohawks are like, or the Mohawk are being like unreasonable and should be killed. And all of this over a golf course. And so I just think, again, along with Inconvenient Indian, I think Beans is an important film to watch because the Yoka crisis was a very like important like shift in Canadian history. And Tracy Deer's like take on it by doing like coming of age story like set during like such a scary and violent time was very very interesting so I'm wondering if like anyone else managed to watch it because I really loved it I got to watch Beans as well I really enjoyed this one too again I second pretty much everything that you said as someone who wasn't really familiar with this particular crisis um, it did have lots of similarities to something here in the USA with the Dakota pipeline so there is definitely some uh, recurrent themes and history repeating itself with that. Um, but I do agree that Tracy did a wonderful job of conveying this like touching coming of age story. And I was actually lucky enough to interview her about this film and her experience. And it's based on personal experience for her. And so I think that that kind of takes the film home and kind of ratchets it up a little and makes it a little more impactful and, and personal. But overall, it was a great film that I think everyone should watch. 
I, I completely agree. I watched it too. It was one of my favorites of the festival. You know, just what Alina and Elby said, it's wonderful. We need voices like Tracy Dears. We need those kind of indigenous story. I think Hollywood is still very coward. They are not doing these stories about indigenous people. They, they are still too coward to tackle the way they butchered an entire race of people. So Beans was a, a little window, a little peek into the racial, into the issues with indigenous people. It's wonderful, a great coming of age. It's and a little underrated thing about the festival, about being digital. It allowed people to watch films that they might not have watched otherwise. Beans was the third, got the third place in the Thief People's Choice Awards, which, which means that people are interested in, in hearing about these stories, in learning about uh, indigenous movements. So this, is still, this doesn't have distribution yet, I think. It's incredible, but keep this movie on your radar. It's absolutely tremendous. And a shout out to Kiawentio. She is the girl that stars. She was also in And With Annie, I think, and she is incredible. She also composed and sang the song in the credits. So, so this girl is so talented. Uh, look out for her. And what do you guys say if we talk about One Night in Miami, one of the most interesting, most hyped about films of the entire festivals. It's uh, directed by Regina King. It's her directing debut, actually. And it pits this fictional or yeah, fictional story about a reunion between Cassius Clay, Sam Brown, Sam Cook, sorry, Jim Brown, and Malcolm X. I think this has some excellent, excellent performances. The first act was kind of wonky. I was very bored, but it hooked me. I think it has a very important dialogue about the role of Afro-American celebrities in their communities. I, I don't think it deserves the praise it's getting because I think there's more important movies like Beans, but it's, it's an excellent film, excellent uh, acting and a very powerful script. What, what did you guys think? I, I, kind, of, I kind of agree. The acting was top-notch. There were some really great performances. Um, Leslie Odom Jr. as Sam Cooke was amazing for me. I think Regina King did a great job um, with her di directorial debut with this. But it was kind of, it was somewhat underwhelming for me. I think it was a little overhyped, and I was expecting a little bit more than what I got. But, I mean, it was a, a powerful message and I get the intent of the film. I just feel like it could have packed a little more of a punch. I agree with you, LV. Uh, one Night in Miami was one of the first films I managed to catch at TIFF. And I think Regina King did a really amazing job like adapting One Night in Miami because it is based on a play. And I think for me, that's what was holding it back Like, it just felt constrained to, like, that one room. And it did, like, lose me at points. But, again, like, we're all saying the acting pulled me back in. Like, 
Leslie Odom Jr. was incredible as Sam Cooke. And I think it's Kingsley Ben-Adir who played uh, Malcolm X. Just for the acting alone, it's One Night Miami. It's just so good and so worth the watch. Like, every single, like, one of those, like, actors is incredible uh, in, like, representing, like, Cassius Clay, like, Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X and all of them. And, like, my family is, like, Muslim. And, like, growing up, you don't really get a lot of, like, great Muslim representation. So I remember, like, my dad, my dad's white, but he, like, likes a lot of, like, Muslim and Caribbean history now because of, like, the family he's, like, married into. So I remember, like, he would show us, my sister and I, like, speeches from, like, Malcolm X and Muhammad Ali because they're, like, one of the few, like, good, like, Muslim representation that we've, like, had. And so my favorite part of One Night in Miami is just, like, this tiny little scene that I feel like people would forget. And it was just, like, watching Cassius Clay and Malcolm X just, like, pray together. And it just really, like, struck me because even, like, even now in, like, 2020, like, there's not a lot of, like, great Muslim representation. But every time I see, like, Islamic prayer and, like, a big movie like that, it just, like, strikes me, like, in a really, like, peaceful way. So... I really like that part of it. I have to say, I also agree with the general consensus here. It was, I'd say, the first major film that I saw of the festival. And I found it the first act to be quite tempered or kind of passive, really. Like, I didn't, it wasn't really hooking me in. And it, you could see that it was very constrained by being, like, by being adapted from a play. But as the second and third act rolled around, the performances really began to shine through and the script I think was very, very well, like it was, uh, it was well polished. And I feel like it kind of all got way more cohesive in the second and third act. And honestly, that final montage was what really sealed the deal for me. And I, I found it to be very important and it said a lot. And so I don't know if that's something I'm different from you guys, but I do have to say that that was the first film I saw in the festival. And I know most people were just all out praising it. And I do feel that that has to do with the fact that maybe it was the first of the festival and that then as the festival began to show more films, we realized, oh, there's other films that have even more important messages. Like I know that in my review, I said like, oh, this might just be the most important film of the year. But honestly, we hadn't really gotten any great films before One Night in Miami this year. And after it, you could kind of see the development of more. So I feel like we do have to see how it plays at other festivals. And I think it's getting a Christmas release by Amazon Prime. I do feel like it's going to get a lot of those award nominations because it is one of those films that says a lot, but it's not like in your face and it won't like alienate any viewers. So I feel like it could, honestly, it does have a chance at winning Best Picture. Like it could be one of those films that like all the other frontrunners have some controversy or that people get bored of them. And One Night in Miami is that film that's always there and slowly rises to the top. I could see that happening, but I do feel like it's a lock for a nomination because it, it really it doesn't offend anyone and it does have meaningful things to say. I, I agree. I think it's a lock for a nomination because of the praise it's getting, but uh, it, it would be a shame if it wins <laughs> the main award because it's, yeah, I agree. again, a beans uh, just... Well, we talk about Beans does a better job of talking about important issues. Miss June Thimp, I think, is another Afro American film that has a lot more to say, but whatever. A very weird film of, of uh, Tiff was a Shadow in the Clouds. 
this was screened as part of the Midnight Madness program. This is like a pulp film, a 90s pulp film, very dumb, very absurd. But I I got I had a blast watching it. It, it was so so dumb and so over the top in every sense of the world. But it sucks because after I had all this fun, the credits rolling and you got Max Landis's name like right in the top. And you know, according to Chloe Grace Moretz, he was he, he, he was the original screenwriter for the film. But he, after the sexual abuse allegations, he was took, he, he, he was taken out of the project, and they rewrote everything. But he's still in the credits, and that's kind of a bummer, because well, the premise of this film is like that Simpsons Treehouse of Horror episode when Bart is trying to warn everyone that there's a gremlin in the bus but no one listens to him and the gremlin is slowly um, destroying the bus. And this is just like that. Chloe Grace Moretz is a pilot in uh, World War II. She, she gets stuck in this little space because all the men in the plane are being very sexist with her, very misogynistic against her. And she starts noticing there's a gremlin or I don't know what it was, like a big bat gremlin thing outside of the plane, tearing it apart. And he tries to warn them, but since they're all sexist pigs, they don't believe her. Then it turns out into this weird sci-fi thing with shooting and hilarious stuff. What did you guys think about uh, Shadow in the Cloud? I feel it was, I mean, it, honestly, it wasn't that typical film you'd find at TIFF, which is why it was probably in the Midnight Madness program. And that is one thing about TIFF that I do like that it does give a chance to other kind of more blockbuster-minded films that still have some good qualities, like Halloween in 2018, to premiere at this festival. Now, I do feel that, that being said, the whole Max Landis involvement is very shady because I know they tried to remove him, but then WGA said he must be credited. Although I feel like they did a relatively good job in kind of taking him out of the film and like you can see that there are some feminist themes now i don't know if he put those in there just kind of like as a patronizing way but at least the way in which they were expressed by director i think i think she's australian or from new zealand one of those two roseanne ling she did a great job at kind of expressing those themes now i feel like this does not have much potential well it may have potential with like wider audiences but with the festival crowd I don't think it has much potential, but I do feel like Roseanne Ling does have a future here directing blockbusters. I wouldn't be surprised seeing her called up to maybe some bigger horror projects or even something in the superhero realm. Like I feel like she's a perfect fit for those genres and she does have a, a really good career ahead of her. Yeah, I agree with what you said, Diego. Um, I think Roseanne does have a, a good, um, I look forward to seeing what she comes out with next, but Overall, Shadow in the Clouds was totally bananas, but Chloe Grace Moretz was a total badass, and I definitely enjoyed that. So overall, it was a very enjoyable watch. But yeah, definitely not your regular festival fare, but, but I think that that was part of the appeal and part of what made it 
so much fun to watch and, and so interesting. Um, it was just, I don't know, like everything just seemed to come from left field in that film. And that's what, what made it memorable for me. I'm going to say agrees all around when it comes to Shadow in the Cloud. Uh, it was just like, it was fun. And again, it's like not something that you would expect to see at TIFF, which makes sense that it's in the Midnight Madness category. And I think Roseanne Ling has a really good like future as like a genre filmmaker because it was just like fun. It reminds me of something that it feels like something that you would have seen at like Fantasia and it's just like this small, like weird little film. I liked it. It was a lot of fun. I did find that like the sexism from the like other like ar the male army pilots like did get like very repetitive, but I kind of like chalked it up to like, oh, it was like the 1940s, like whatever. They were all like that. But yeah, Chloe Grace Moretz was great in this. And I normally like don't like find her like that good of an actress, but I, I liked her in this. So another film I want to talk about that was one of my favorites was Shiva Baby. I thought Shiva Baby was just like so hilarious. Uh, it's about this uh, Jewish girl and her parents like drag her to a Shiva, which is like after the Jewish funeral, it's like a mourning ceremony thing. And she, this girl, I forget her, the character's name, but she's played by Rachel Sinote. Uh, oh, her name's Danielle in the film. Danielle's the main character. Danielle happens to run into her sugar daddy at this, like, Jewish funeral thing, and it's just, like, erupts into chaos because she's, like, trying to, like, cover up how she, like, knows this, like, random dude. And I don't know, it, like, reminded me a little bit of, like, Uncut Gems, but, like, less, a bit of a less of a stake because it's just, like, so anxiety-inducing as you watch, like, Danielle try and, like, navigate the rest of this, like, family get-together, and it's just really funny. So I hope everyone else got the chance to watch it. Yeah, unfortunately, I didn't, and... I'd say that's probably my biggest regret of the festival because I, I heard all this buzz and all this praise and I just, I had too much on my plate and I said, oh, maybe I'll request a screener. But then by that time, they were denying those requests. So I do know that it's going to play in a couple of local festivals. So I'm definitely going to go check it out once it's released there. But for sure, that was definitely my greatest regret of the festival because hearing what everyone said afterwards, it seems like it was really worth the watch. Yeah, same here. It's one of those ones that I missed and I, I regret that I missed it just based off of what I'd been hearing about it. Um, hopefully I get a chance to to catch it somewhere sometime soon. Yeah, I, I, I hated everyone in it, but in a good way. This was very well made, very funny. It gave me more anxiety than watching Dunkirk in, in the Nymax movie theater, you know? It's it was crazy, it was relentless, because it, it has this familiarity about it. Like you've all been in family reunions when you got this uncle asking, hey, where, where's the girlfriend? Hey, uh, what are you going to study? What's going on with you? And it's so annoying. And this is like augmented by a thousand times in Shiva Baby. I honestly think that Emma Seligman, this is one of the best directed works of 2020, just because it finds like the exact tune to getting your nerves. Every single element is controlled in such a smart way to make you 
feel the anxiety of the main character and it's so authentic and so funny so keep your eye out on shiva baby it's very very fun but um if you got anxiety problems uh, be careful because it's it's very heavy on that um another film that i think we should talk about what do you say is penguin bloom penguin bloom stars naomi watts as um a, a mother that after an accident in Thailand, we really need to get Naomi what's out of Thailand, please. Um, she, she, uh, she gets paralyzed from the waist down and she is depressed. She's disenamored from life. She doesn't want to get out. Her relationship with her family starts to break down. And then his son, finds a little magpie, a baby magpie in the beach. He brings it to home. They adopt the magpie. And, uh, you know, it's very conventional story about how this little magpie inspires Naomi Watts' character to get over her, um, the, the, her paralysis. Because the magpie can't fly either. He, he's hurt. He's also trying to, you know, to, to learn to fly. And before you say this is some Disney bullshit, it's not, it's based on real life. And as you may have guessed by everything I've said in, in this podcast, I love animals. And this was wonderful. I love, 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 love Penguin Bloom. It hit all my right notes. I think it's um, a beautiful tale about loving life and about the importance of animal life too, about how animals can change someone's life and that's a very important message to have in these dark times where there's all these climate change denials there's this this humanized connection with nature and with animals now, this is a very a family film that is trying to say hey you need to respect nature you need to respect animals because they you can learn a lot from them too they are full of love and and in this case, I, I want to give an Oscar to whoever trained the little magpie because it's tremendous all the stuff this little bird does. So I'm in the minority. I know lots of people hate it. <laughs> it's the penguin bloom. I wanna uh, listen to what you have to say about it. So I, I liked penguin bloom as well. I do understand the criticisms of it. Like it is very like, like a gentle film it doesn't like take very many risks like at all but it is like based on a true story so I was kind of like thinking of it that way I thought Naomi Watts was incredible in this I think she did like a really good job playing um the main character because uh her character is somebody who's like very athletic and she comes she lives in a she is part of a very adventurous family and they do a lot of like active things like in the flashbacks you see them like running around the beach and like playing all these sports and like she is the only like woman in this family and her boys are like very like rambunctious so I feel like after she like becomes paralyzed by like having that fall it's a very big like adjustment to her because it's so different than like the life she had before. And I think a lot of people kind of were upset with this film because it can creep into like ableism. 
but I think it did like a good job like staying away from that because it's focusing on like Naomi Watts's character's like feelings and like how she was feeling at the time and like she's allowed to like be upset with like her disability and like be angry with her situation and the whole point of the movie is like her like having to like understand that and I think if you were in that situation you can be like very like frustrated angry with your body like for myself like right now I've been having like a bit of a hearing issue over these past couple months and I have no idea what it is and it's been like really frustrating to me because I haven't been able to figure out like what's causing it yet and like I can still like hear just fine but then there are certain points where I just like completely like miss things like if there's people like having like another conversation with me I can't hear anything because it's just like too much I don't I don't know what it is yet but there are points where like people will get upset with me because I like miss something they said and they're like why aren't you paying attention to me it's like I, I am trying to like I just my ears aren't working like they used to and I don't know what's wrong and I've been like frustrated and angry so I understand where Naomi Watts's character is coming from in Penguin Bloom and then I agree with Ricardo the magpies in this film were just like really like sweet and cute and they did a great job so like it's a sweet film it's worth checking out like it's a nice like happy like feel good film yeah I think if you're in the mindset of looking for like a happy feel good film as Alina was saying I feel this is one that you'd probably like I've seen it compared to one of those like cheap Hallmark movies I feel it does have a little bit more production value than those but in terms of the fact that like maybe you could sit down and watch it with your grandma or something, that's definitely a criticism. Although in my opinion, that's a good thing because especially in the festival circuit and nowadays there's not that many films coming out that really just kind of give the sense of hope. The ableist themes, like I did notice some and like as a disabled person myself, I feel they did a good job because as Alina was saying, it's not really the ultimate message of the movie. Like that's just showing how Naomi Watts feels. And honestly, if you're looking overall, by the end, she able, she's able to accept her situation and actually see the good in her situation. So I feel it's overall, it's actually not ableist. Like you can see kind of that mentality there, but ultimately I feel like Naomi Watts is able to trump that mentality. And it's a very, like, because of that, I feel like it's a very good film and it does have a good message that is worth for all to hear. Another good family film that I feel is going to be one that everyone is going to want to watch with just all their families, and it's very heartfelt, very well made, is The Waterman. I feel it does also fall into the same trap of not really taking any true risks, and it's not some like ambitious, mind-blowing masterpiece like other films in this festival are. But I feel for what it's going for, it's David, I think, Oyuelos. I think that's how you pronounce his last name, directorial debut. And he also stars as the father. And it has Rosario Dawson as a mother who's, I think, has terminal cancer. And her son is just trying to figure out ways to save her. And it really reminds me of kind of like those 80s Spielberg films, like especially E.T., where it's light, but it does have some darker themes and more mature themes. And it really will probably open the eyes of many children who see it. And I feel for that alone, it's definitely a good film. Like I said before, I don't feel it takes enough risks and it does fall a little bit flat in certain places, but overall it's definitely worth the watch with your family. And I think Disney actually had it at first and then they dropped it. I don't know, that's what I read. But I feel like if some streaming service 
were to pick it up, it would be a surefire family hit. And LV, you saw that as well, correct? Yeah, I did uh, get a chance to watch this one. It's definitely um, a family-friendly film. It was it was well done. It's a decent movie. Um, I just think, for me personally, it just kind of got lost in the shuffle with all the other great films that I saw during the Yeah, festival. yeah, I definitely So this agree. one didn't really, yeah, it didn't really stand out for me. One, however, that did stand out for me that seemed to have also gotten lost in the shuffle, because I, I don't think many people saw it, because I think it was an industry select, and it actually got bought by Netflix recently. I think they're looking to release it early 2021, is I Care A Lot. It stars Rosamund Pike, and the director, Jay Blake, actually directed The Fifth Wave, which was pretty much a flop, we can all agree. So it was good to see him kind of bounce back into some like such a unique piece. It definitely reminds me of kind of like this year's Bad Education, where it's very like, it's kind of quirky, it's very snappy, it's clever, uh, the colors pop. It's a very intriguing and like twisty thriller. And it, it, the, it has some great tonal shifts as well. And overall, it's, just, it's really, really good. I feel like it's gonna find a great wide audience. And Rosamund Pike's probably delivers her best performance since Gone Girl, I'd say. It's very comedic. And sometimes it does get a little silly, but I feel like that works really well for what the film is going for. So I think none of you, or I think like I was the only one here who watched it, but I really do recommend that once it starts hitting Netflix, everyone gets on it because I feel like it's going to be one of those that gets much buzz and definitely some nominations. Well, I don't know if it will get nominated for a TV movie. I do feel like if it had gone the HBO route, it could have kind of repeated Bad Education's success but it's going to Netflix. So I don't know how that's going to work, but I do feel like it's going to get a lot of attention, at least from general audiences. And another one that I saw that doesn't actually, this one does not have distribution yet, which I find kind of strange is concrete cowboy. So I know the rest of you guys also watched that one. So what were your thoughts on that film? I hated it. <laughs> I'm sorry. This was my least liked film of a thief. Uh, it was very slow. Uh, it the the story is very generic. It's about this kid um, who, who is very troublesome. He gets expelled from his school, so uh, his mother dumps him with his cowboy father. No, uh, his cowboy father is um, played by Idris Elba, who is atrocious in this film. I think I probably in the minority, but I, I did not like what Idris Elba did here. Um, and, you know, this character, he is an urban cowboy. There's this thing called the Fletcher Street Urban Riding Club where uh, these cowboys take kids out of the streets and they teach them uh, to ride horses in order to keep them out of trouble. And, you know, um, Cole, who is the kid, the troublesome kid, played by Stranger Things, Caleb McLaughlin. Um, he has to choose between being a cowboy with his father or pursuing a crime life with his best friend uh, played by Jarrell Jerome. And this has very familiar beats. And my main issue is that I never felt like any of these people liked horses at all. There's this very important part of the film where they get accused of animal cruelty. I couldn't disagree with that statement because they had a pretty shitty stable 
uh, there was a, like a dead horse lying around. Idris Elba literally has a horse inside his home. It's full of animal cruelty, <laughs> this movie. And I couldn't empathize with absolutely anyone. There's a horse heist sequence that is laughable, but uh, I'm in the minority. What, what did you guys think? Probably someone enjoyed it more than, but more than I did. I guess I only enjoyed it slightly more than you did. It was not one of my favorites as well. Like you said, it is a very familiar story, one that we've seen time and time again. I do appreciate the fact that it does shine a spotlight on something that, or a culture and a lifestyle that a lot of people aren't familiar with, which is urban cowboys. A lot of people like have no idea that that's an actual thing. So that part of it was cool. Uh, I think Caleb did a good job, but overall, this was another one that was kind of underwhelming for me. I was expecting a lot more, but I really didn't see anything that was, I guess, all that that new and different. I did screen something recently at another festival, uh, Charm City Kings, that is very similar to the story in this one. But that one, to me, just did a, a much better job. Uh, so this one is just, again, not one of my favorites. I think I liked it a little bit more than you. Like I did find it generic and all that stuff. Like I really didn't feel like it had any greater ambitions, but I feel like I didn't really know much about that side of Philadelphia with all the, with all the concrete cowboys. Like I had no idea that existed. So it was eye-opening in that sense. And I liked that at the end, they kind of showed the interviews because they actually used a lot of real concrete cowboys as actors in the film. And I found that was a nice touch. Uh, Caleb McLoggin's performance was really great, in my opinion, and it shows that he may be one of the stronger cast members of Stranger Things, and I, I really can't wait to see what he does next. But yeah, I found it kind of generic, and I don't know, I found it, like, it was fine. Like, I don't think it was bad in any sense, but it just, like I said before, it wasn't really reaching anywhere, and it kind of does fall into a couple slogs every once in a while. I think I liked Concrete Cowboy more than everybody here, uh, but that's okay. I do understand where everyone's coming from. It is a generic story that we've heard before, but I think when you think of it as a Western, that's when it becomes unique. So my dad, he loves Westerns. Like I've seen all of like Clint Eastwood's films and throughout like the Western genre, it's all like white cowboys, even like, not not including like this urban like Philadelphia cowboy like community there has been like black and Latino like cowboys like throughout history and we haven't like seen any films like about them or at least that I know of I never I didn't grow up watching any and I've seen like 500 something westerns with my dad so I think when you think of concrete cowboy as a western I think it works better that way I did really like it I thought Idris Elba was fine but I think this movie was Caleb's. He did really well as uh, Idris Elba's son. I always forget characters' names, I think, in, in festival movies. But yes, it, it was slow, but I think it was a really good look at gentrification. Because again, like this happens to be a real story and Fletcher Street is being like threatened by like development and this community is getting like pushed out of like their neighborhood and I do see where like Ricardo is coming from of like the animal cruelty but 
I think it's just like they're doing the best they can with what they have. Like they don't have the like resources to like make this like incredible like stable for them. And I think by all these um like the neighborhood like doing just like what they can, I think it shows that they do like love their horses and like they're the horses are with them for like the entire film and they yes they go through that like heist to like get them back. Like to me, it feels like they do care and they want to like give their horses like more. They just don't have like the financial resources to do it. And they didn't have the financial resources to like fight um, their horses being taken and the gentrification that's coming to their neighborhood. So I, I did enjoy Concrete Cowboy like quite a bit. And another film that I think got even more mixed reviews than Concrete Cowboy, despite its star power was Good Joe Bell. So I think most of you guys have seen this one, if I'm correct. So what do you guys think about that film? Because I know there were a lot of differing opinions, mostly siding on negative, but there were, in my opinion, quite a few good qualities of it as well. I hated it. <laughs> like, oh my gosh, I don't like Mark Wahlberg. And to me, Good Joe Bell felt like Mark Wahlberg trying to get back onto like people's good sides because a lot more people are talking more about his, like, past, like, the man was literally charged with, like, a hate crime. He beat up, like, an Asian man for literally no reason. There's also stories of him, like, bullying, like, black kids in his past, and, like, throwing rocks at them and calling them the n-word, and, like, the people who wrote Good Joe Bell happened to work on Brokeback Mountain, and I read, like, a thing that, like, Ang Lee wanted Mark Wahlberg to, like, appear in it, and he said that the, like, Broke Mountain script was, like, creepy, so, like, I guess he's, like, trying to redeem himself, but it just didn't work for me. I don't trust Mark Wahlberg, like, his past just, like, is too much, and he does, like, so many, like, patriotic movies that I just, like, he just gives me the vibe that he's homophobic, but it's just trying not to be just for, like, the sake of appearances, and, this movie just didn't work for me because you're seeing Jaden, the son's story, who happened to like commit suicide. Spoilers, it's a real story, so I guess it's not really spoilers. Because he was like being bullied for being gay. You're looking at his story through his like straight father who like didn't understand him. So it was just, it was so like, I don't understand why this story needed to be told in the way it did. Like, it shouldn't have been told through, like, Mark Wahlberg's character at all. It, oh, it just, like, makes my skin crawl. That's how much I hated it. Yeah, I agree with you on that one. Um, I was not a fan of this film. It was boring, slow, was not a fan of Mark Wahlberg's character in this. Didn't like how it was told through his point of view. Yeah, I really don't have anything good to say about this one. It was one of the the few where I really wanted to just turn it off halfway and not even finish, but I did. So there's that. I think for me, it may have been a case of just kind of differing expectations because I came in a little late to this one and I had been hearing so much about how this film like just really does not, just mistreats his character and especially uh, the, his gay son. Like it does, it really just doesn't shine like a well enough light on it. So I came in like just hearing all these criticisms about how tone deaf it was. And 
I actually found it quite compelling because I actually didn't really see like it being as bad as people were saying. Like, yeah, there were definitely moments here and there. And just the overall story was a little bit tone deaf. But I feel like people were talking about how tone deaf it was so much that I came into it expecting something much worse. And by seeing something that just was a little bit bad, it actually turned out being like fine with me. Just from a pure narrative perspective, I found like the, the twist, like the fact that it was a twist, like I didn't like the fact that that was a twist, but I feel like in the terms of the story, uh, it worked. Like I said, like I'm a little bit mixed in this film. I'm like the whole time I was grappling, like, cause I don't come in with like that LGBTQ plus perspective. So that's why I struggled a little bit with kind of like assessing it. Cause I, I'm well aware that I do not have that perspective. So I can't give like a well thought out full opinion of that film without putting myself in that position and just coming in with that mindset, which I didn't do. And that was my bad, but I found it to be very emotionally compelling. And in terms of Mark Wahlberg, I'm a little bit more optimistic. And I feel like this is really him trying to redeem himself, just trying to like atone for his sins. But honestly, I do see where you're coming from in terms of that. He's just trying to do it for maybe good publicity. Although I, I, I hope it's my optimistic side is right, but who can know at this point? So yeah, I found it to be, overall it was good, but I do have to acknowledge that there were quite a few themes and moments there that just were really tone deaf as well. Another one of the big titles at a TIFF that was also a little controversial was Pieces of a Woman. And this one, it's a very heavy film because it deals with like baby loss and like stillbirth. So it has Vanessa Kirby as the mother and Shia LaBeouf, and they're a couple, and, like, they decide to have, like, deliver their baby at home, like, they decide to do a home birth, and unfortunately, like, the baby doesn't make it, and then it, like, shifts into, like, um, like, a court case, and, like, Vanessa Kirby, like, dealing with the aftermath, and a lot of people are upset with how her character, like, deals with it. So what I liked about Pieces of a Woman was the opening sequence. It goes very long, like the birthing scene. Um, They use a lot of like long takes and it's very, very well done. And I think because this like opening 30 minutes of the like delivery and labor was like so well done, I think once the credits finally hit at that like 30 minute mark-ish, the rest of the film just like goes downhill because it just doesn't live up to how great the opening scene was. And I think a lot of people felt the same way. Yeah, I agree with that. It's definitely a slow burn. Um, It was well done. And I think Vanessa Kirby did an amazing job. But yeah, after watching the opening and then seeing the rest, like it does kind of fall a little flat. Uh, Yeah, I think the first act is uh, tremendous. It starts out with a bang. But uh, after that, it's pretty uneven. There's big moments. There's boring moments. It doesn't manage to keep up the pace. But I did love the third act even more than the first act. Like the closing scene. Uh, well, not, not, not the last five minutes. Just there's this big set piece with Vanessa Kirby on it. I think it was fantastic. And, you know, the thing with this is that everything Vanessa Kirby is on screen the movie rocks like you have to watch what's going on 
but whenever she's not, you know, you get Shia LaBeouf doing Shia LaBeouf stuff, like shouting, screaming, being loud. You know, he, Shia LaBeouf plays Shia LaBeouf. You know, I, I did not like him too much. Um, Ellen Borstein is there too. She's very good. She's very a controlling mother, and I, I hated her. <laughs> but at the end of the day, this is a Vanessa Kirby powerhouse performance, and I wouldn't be surprised if she ends up winning the Best Actress Oscar. She is that good here. What, what did you think, Diego? So, yeah, I think I actually agree way more with what Ricardo says rather than Alina and LV. So I, do, I did find the first act to be like really gripping and just kind of top-notch directing. And those long takes were just brilliant. But for the rest of the film, I actually found it to be quite good as well. Like I really don't see where it fell flat. It might be that, I don't know if just people didn't like just the pure nihilism because there really wasn't a hopeful moment in this story. I don't think there was a single hopeful moment in this story, but that is something that I really liked and enjoyed because there's very few films that are just so nihilistic. And I feel like it was a good portrait of seeing just how everything at the beginning is like so perfect, so pure, everything's going great. And then this one event happens and it just derails the entire story, the, their entire life. And it's just the rest of it is just a story of like their livelihood just falling apart and I like how it does end in a kind of in a negative, well, but as a Kirby at the end, she does kind of re, like everything kind of gets redeemed maybe a little bit in her mind, but overall, especially with Shia LaBeouf's character, I think he does deliver a good performance. That's something I, I know I differ in with you guys, but I feel like the end where he just like, I mean, I don't want to spoil anything, but like when certain things happen and like, it just like things could have gone a much different way, but kind of because Ellen Burstyn in her role of, like I said, the controlling mother, she Honestly, I feel like she could be one of those people who just with one monologue, because there is one monologue that I'm sure anyone who's seen it will know exactly what I'm talking about. I feel like she could win Best Supporting Actress with that one monologue because it was just, it was, it, it was truly breathtaking. Overall, I feel like I get why people might be a little bit let down by the second and third acts, but I still feel like it was a very, very good movie and one that doesn't deserve kind of like the mixed reviews it's getting. But one film that has been getting pretty much unanimous critical praise and buzz from kind of every single facet has been Nomadland. So I want to hear your guys' thoughts on that one because I know that was the big TIFF's People's Choice Award winner. I know it won Golden Lion at Venice. I'm, I think it's going to win the New York Film Festival Prize as well, but it just seems to be sweeping every single thing it's in. So I want to hear what you guys think on that. Well, these Nomadland is like combining flowers and poppies and ice cream. It's, it's so perfect. It's jo- I'm just joking. I didn't watch it because I got discriminated against. And this is no joke. I, I couldn't watch it. This was only available to um, America, USA and uh, UK. So this sucks. Um, next time you think about saying that the Academy is very inclusive for nominating Chloe Shaw, remember that this movie <laughs> couldn't be watched by people that speak other languages other than English. And that sucks because we're part of the media inclusion. And where is that inclusion? I was not included in watching this film. And it sucked because you get all these reactions out of Venice, out of Thief saying this is the best movie ever. Oh, even though I got press crediting, I couldn't watch it. Yeah, that does suck that you weren't able to see that. Um, 
I did get a chance to watch Nomadland and it was a beautiful film. Um, Chloe Zhao did a, a great job of directing this. Frances McDormand was amazing, but she can do no wrong in my book. So I was kind of expecting that from her. It's just a, a heartfelt story of survival and community and finding yourself, especially in the face of um, like world changing or life changing events and the, the economic collapse of 2008 and how it had devastating impacts on pretty much everyone here in the in the US. Um, and it's also like a, a love letter to the independent spirit and just trying to uh, to find yourself and live on your own terms and by your own rules. And overall, I think it was just a, a well done film. I enjoyed this one. It's not it's not a lot of action, like you're not getting all of that from it, but it's just a, a beautiful portrait of daily life and the daily struggle of a regular individual. And it was just well done. I also really enjoyed Nomadland. I've never seen any other of Chloe. I believe her last name is pronounced Jaw. I saw that on a Hollywood Reporter article. So I haven't seen any of Chloe Jaw's like other films like um, The Rider or I can't remember what the other like one people talk about is. But so this is my like first time like seeing her style. And the way she like approaches film is just, it's, it was beautiful. Like Nomadland is just a beautiful film to look at. Like it is like slow and as it follows like Francis McDormand's character, but it's really beautiful. And the eye that sh she has for just like landscapes and cinematography and all these things, it's just, it's just a really beautiful film. And Francis McDormand was really great in it. And I think it also is a really like interesting look at this American subculture of like van life. So I know it's like taking off among like young people on like YouTube. A lot of people are like getting vans and just going traveling and being like digital nomads and like having like an online presence and that's how they're making money and they just have to go live in a van. And I've always like been attracted to like the 1960s and 70s and like all those hippie buses. So I've, it's something I've wanted to do, but I don't have my driver's license because I'm a loser. And like this movie, it's like, man, it makes me want to get my driver's license. <laughs> um, like it is like sad because instead of like looking at like young people in van life, it's looking at like older people and how it's not really like their choice to live in this way like some of them weren't able to have like a proper like retirement savings and this is like the only way that they can actually like afford to live but even if that's their like circumstance everybody like seems like happy and like part of the community and all the other like side characters are like interesting and compelling as well so I thought Nomadland was like a really really great film and I think it's gonna go like very far and I think Chloe Jaw is going to go very far as well. Yeah, I feel like No My Land was just one of those films that like there's, at least for me, when that there's like just a select few films each year that just are able to truly just suck me in from start to finish and just keep me glued to the screen. And I think No My Land is definitely one of those. Pacing normally for me is like something that I really pay attention to when I'm like looking and when I'm watching films. 
But honestly, like while I do know that people did say it was slow, I was just completely captivated from start to finish with this one. And I did not notice a single pacing issue, which I'm sure they were there, but personally, I didn't notice them at all. I feel just, just the sheer beauty of the cinematography and just how everything is captured. Just Chloe Jaw is just a truly, she's going to go on to, to have an incredible career because I know she's already ha- having the Eternals releasing soon. And I'm interested to see what her take on a big blockbuster is going to be like. But I feel like at least in the independent film game, she's probably the, the most exciting young voice out there. And just because just the ways that she's able to capture everything is just, it's like mind blowing to me. Like I really, it reminds me a little bit of Roma, but I do feel like even Roma, despite how good it is, it was, it was still a little bit flatter than this one. Cause I feel like this one was just so vibrant and it just puts you in the moment. And it feels almost like a documentary in a certain sense, but it just, the win when she even uses similar to Concrete Cowboy, but I think it's more effective where she uses real nomads who tell their stories, who tell their personal stories. This isn't scripted at all. They just tell their own personal stories and she captures them in these beautiful like close-ups where you can just see their face and you can just see their pain and their emotion as they tell their stories. And then when you like juxtapose that with just the sweeping landscapes that she captures as well, I feel like this is definitely 100% deserving of all the praise. I don't feel like it's going to win Best Picture simply for the fact that I feel like this may be one of those films that doesn't translate well out of kind of critic circles and maybe some awards voting bodies. I don't know how well this is going to translate to general audiences similar to Roma who like, cause Roma, like everyone loved it. And then audiences saw it and they appreciated the filmmaking, but they didn't give it as much merit as us critics do. So that's my only worry for this film. But honestly it was, I mean, we'll talk about this in a sec, but it was one of my favorite films of the festival by far. Nomadland is the last film we're talking about. So Tiff had like a ton of great movies. I had a really good time with the festival. I'd love to hear what everybody else thought about this year's edition of TIFF overall. So I guess I'll go ahead and start with that. I really enjoyed the festival. This was my first time being accredited. So this was a major deal for me. I went to TIFF last year obviously in in person, just as a a regular uh, film lover. And it was an amazing experience. So it was was quite different to experience the the festival all digitally this time, um, given the circumstances. But I still, I enjoyed it. I thought it was very well done. There was a, a great selection of diverse films for me. The panels were great. The different industry talks were very good. Technology-wise, I think everything was was good. There were a few films that, because I was located here in the U.S., that I was geo-blocked out of, which kind of sucked. But Ricardo touched on that as well. So I guess that was something that it doesn't really matter, like, where you were in the world. Like, there were some things that you weren't going to be able to see, and that kind of sucked. But overall, I really enjoyed it. Having the, the 48-hour uh, viewing window was... I don't know, I guess it was pros and cons to that because there were so many things that I wanted to see just having the 48 hours and (laughs) 
also having a full-time job, it's kind of hard to, to fit everything in within that time frame. But since then, I've covered another festival and they've only had a 24-hour window, which is even harder to do. So I now appreciate the 48 hours. But yeah, and I was uh, excited and glad to be a part of the Media Inclusion Initiative and being able to build a community with other uh, diverse critics from around the world has been pretty, pretty amazing. So overall, it was just a, a great experience and a great festival this year. Yeah, it was a great experience. I was, uh, it was my first TIFF accreditation too, my first TIFF experience. Very overwhelming, just as Elby said. 40, um, 48 hours to watch a bunch of films. And then if you didn't watch the film you wanted, you got the next batching coming the next day and the next day. Uh, but it was a lot of fun and it was pretty cool to have the, the chance to watch all these international films. Um, I, I, I'm very appreciative of, of the opportunity, the media inclusion stuff. They also gave us uh, some conversations, a couple of Zoom meetings to, to learn to find new things about the job. There's definitely room to, to improve, you know. We, I think no one could watch The Father or Ammonite because there are producers, the directors didn't want us to watch it, which sucks. Um, I think Halle Berry was pretty responsible. She, her film, Bruce, was an official selection, but she pulled it out just because she wanted to keep editing and, well, that spot could have gone to another indie film that needed that exposure. So I think that was very uncool from her, but whatever, there were plenty of other good stuff. And um, it's pretty, pretty interesting to see how it got developed through the digital platform. You know, I, I talked about it earlier about the beans. Now, this film wouldn't have gotten the same response in a physical festival, but with the chance to pick whatever you want to watch, people decided to watch this story about an indigenous representation. And that's very cool. That's one of the highlights of the festival for me. And that's it. Um, it was a very, very cool experience. Yeah, so this was my first time being accredited for TIFF and also as a member of the Media Inclusion Initiative. And out of all the festivals I've covered, I'd say this one by far has been the most welcoming, the most uh, just enjoyable. And honestly, like going in, I thought like, okay, this is gonna be a very stressful experience. I'm gonna be watching films back to back to back. But the way in which it was all set up and everything was handled, actually like right now I'm nostalgic to, for going back to those days of just watching film after film at TIFF. Cause it was truly, it, it was a great, great experience. And especially with all those media inclusion initiative seminars, cause I know some of us got the chance to, to speak to some industry professionals and they were, those talks were really eye-opening. Just the way everything was set up was really, really great. Like I said, there were some flaws as always, but that's bound to happen. It's TIFF's first digital edition and who knows if they're going to be having to do more digital editions depending on how the COVID crisis develops in the next year. But comparing it to other festivals, I do know there are some other upcoming festivals that have really have to be scrambling at, and seeing what they can do. And TIFF has been able to successfully create a digital festival that honestly probably brought much more exposure to some of these like under the radar films. Cause like if I had gone in person, 
most of these films that I watch, I probably wouldn't have known about them, had a chance to watch them. Because at least with the digital festival, you can see someone buzzing about it, they recommend it, and then you still have like 24 to 48 hours to watch it and kind of like hear it about it yourself. And in an in-person festival, that may have not been the case because screenings may have already been booked or sold out and you really didn't have that chance. So I do that they limited some press from covering certain things. And, but I don't think that's the festival's fault. I do not, as Ricardo was saying, there are some just directors and producers who prefer to keep it a theatrical screening, which honestly is kind of controversial. I don't agree with it, but I'm sure many out there do. But overall, TIFF was just an incredible festival experience and one that I can't wait to go back to, hopefully in person next year. So I've been to TIFF in person quite a few times because one of my cousins happens to have like a condo, like a block or two from like Toronto's entertainment district. So I like always stay with her and I like catch like a ton of films. So for me, the digital edition, just like it didn't feel the same because like I know what like TIFF is like in person and I missed it like so much, but I think the festival did a really good job with the digital edition. I thought the 48 hour window was like good. Sometimes I wish it was longer because like on the first weekend, there was a lot of things that like I missed because like I was working, I was working on writing things. And I was like disappointed that like, oh shit, like this expired. Like I accidentally like missed this. I wish I had gotten the chance to watch it. So I kind of wish that like if they had like had a bit of a balance throughout the festival. I don't know if it was just me, but Towards the end, it kind of felt like things were like starting to like fall off and I was like getting less interested as the festival progressed. And I don't know if that's like normal because again with TIFF, I've, and the in-person ones, I've only gone for like the first couple of days when like everything's like raging and happening and like you're running like as fast as you can through like Toronto blocks trying to make it to like the next theater. So I missed the like chaos and like, the joy of like just randomly stumbling upon something like you're checking like the app and like oh it's like this place has like a ticket it starts in 20 minutes like I'm gonna grab this I'm gonna see this random movie I don't know what it's about and I'm gonna run like four blocks to like the next theater like so I hope next year that it's back in person and the world is okay and we can like enjoy things like as they were but again I think with they did the best that they absolutely could have like, it, I've covered a couple other festivals this year as well, and I agree with Diego that TIFF did one of the, like, best, like, versions of a digital festival, for sure. To round out ClapperCast, we'd like to end on each of our top three picks of the festival. So, Diego, let's start with you. So, overall, this was a very competitive festival. There were a lot of great films, as you most likely know from our past conversations. But my third favorite one would have to be Pieces of a Woman. As I said before, it was just, it was stunning. The takes were incredible. Vanessa Kirby's performance, I'm sure she's going to get an Oscar for that. Same with Ellen Burstyn. It was just a great nihilistic film. Second would have to be Nomadland. It was just captivating. It was just, the cinematography was beautiful. Just the way it was directed, again, was just brilliant. But my number one, and this is by far my number one, it's probably my favorite of the year overall. And I've covered a couple more festivals after TIFF, but it's still my favorite of the year. Has to be New Order. Just how shocking and just twisted it is. 
and just how you never know where it's going. And it just, it, it's just a thrill ride that is just, it's easily the best of the year. I just, I can't overstate how well made this film is. It's very nihilistic. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people out there who just don't resonate with it. But for me personally, it, like I said before, it's the best film of the year. Neon's picking it up. I know it's releasing in Mexico soon. When it's safe, make sure you go watch it because whether or not, even if you don't like it, I'm sure it will be a memorable experience that you'll never forget. Yeah, I'm, I'm very excited about it, but I hope there's a safe way to watch it. And before I say my top three, shout out to you, Diego. You were great during the festival. You created this little group with lots of uh, press from Tiff, lots of media inclusion there. And there was this great sense of camaraderie, a friendship, everyone helping each other, everyone giving recommendations. And uh, you, you were like right in the front lines leading that charge, Diego. So thank you and thank you for the invitation to this podcast. And um, my top three, number three was Penguin Bloom. Again, I love it. This is my kind of story about animal life, about loving nature, about loving life. And uh, it has a terrific Naomi Watts performance. My number two was Quoba Dis Aida, the Bosnian film about the massacre in Serenica, harrowing, brutal. I couldn't take my eyes off the screen and a very, very important film during these um, pretty dark times. Uh, Keep your eyes on that. And my number one favorite film of Tiff is The Best Is Yet To Come, this Chinese film about uh, journalistic integrity. I think it was brilliantly directed. It has some tremendous performances and it tells a very humane story about hope, about the need to fight for what is right, the need to, to fight for having a, a good moral compass and being good journalists. And that's it. The best yet to come was my favorite. So I want to second what Ricardo said and just thank Diego for all that he did and for inviting me to be um, a guest on your podcast. Uh, definitely appreciate it. Um, so in terms of my top three, I saw a lot of great films and it's really hard to narrow it down to my three favorites. Um, but I guess and these are in no particular order, just because it's such a, a hard thing to do. Nomadland is definitely one, just for the reasons that I had mentioned before. It's a beautiful film, well done and well acted. Another is um, uh, True Mothers, which isn't one that we really talked about, um, but it was, uh, I believe it's a Japanese film. And it's just a, a beautiful, story of motherhood and adoption and family and it's it takes you through all of the emotions and it was just it was beautiful to watch um and i really enjoyed that one and my third one was probably cuvetus ada as well um just because that one was like a total gut punch and it was really impactful and well done and yeah, I, I, I want to say that I enjoyed it, but it's not a subject matter that you enjoy. But the film overall was was well done and and it kept me engaged. So those were my top three. And my top three were Shiva Baby, Nomadland and Beans. And we've all gone off on all of them like enough. 
Uh, so I won't like go into it anymore, but just please like take the time to see Beans when it like comes out. It's really important to hear like indigenous voices in cinema. And I think Beans is like a really wonderful film for that. Well, that is it for this week's episode of ClapperCast, the global film podcast. Where can we find everyone on social media? Um, you can find me at WallyRGR on Twitter. That's W-A-L-L-Y-R-G-R. I will be covering soon the Nightstream Genre Film Festival for Shuffle Online. I also have my own website, La Estatuilla. If you happen to know Spanish, to if you want to learn more Spanish, if you want to write, uh, I've always got a space available there to grow. You can find me on Twitter at LVTaylor underscore ESQ. Um, I also have my own movie blog, musingsofastreamingjunkie.com, and I am a contributing writer for We Live Entertainment. So that's where you can find me. You can find me on both Letterboxd and Twitter at the Diego Andaluz, and that's A-N-D-A-L-U-Z. And I'm currently covering the New York Film Festival and will be covering many more festivals and new releases as they come out. Uh, I currently write for Clapper, Awards Watch, and Film Inquiry. And as you all know, I'm the producer of Clappercast, the global film podcast as well. So I'm Alina Falds on Twitter and Letterboxd. Thank you guys so much for bearing with me as I guest hosted this episode because it's my first time. Hopefully Jack is back soon, but I don't know. I am Clapper's social media manager and I also write for Flipscreen. I wrote for a few other places. So you can find all of the latest releases of film and television reviewed at www.clapperltd.co.uk. And you can find all of Clapper's social links on Facebook and Twitter at ClapperLTD. And we also have a letterbox, which is at ClapperLTD as well. Um, make sure to rate, subscribe, and follow us to be notified when the next episode of ClapperCast comes out. Thank you all for listening, and we will be back next week to discuss all things cinema. Bye. To celebrate our one-year anniversary over at Clapper, we have commissioned over a dozen horror clothing designs ranging from Midsummer, Hereditary, Get Out, Raw, and classic characters, new and old, that can be found on Bonfire. You can find the link in the description below. Thank you for listening.